0: Today's episode of the Attorney Lounge is with David Rao. He's the president and general counsel at Anexus. Um, he's also a Thunderbird, which is the group that puts on the WM Phoenix Open every year, which is the most heavily attended golf tournament. It draws nearly 700,000 fans every year. It's just an incredible event. We have a great conversation about the growth of that tournament um the impact that it has on the valley, both uh, from a charitable standpoint as well as the economic impact that it has. Uh we talk about something that I think is underappreciated there, which is the concert, uh, the concerts that they throw every day in the bird's nest after the event is over. Um they have some um some great music, uh some well known performers and they've even converted the famous PAR three sixteenth into a concert venue the Saturday before the tournament um this year they're hosting Post Malone there and they just keep innovating this tournament every year and making it better and better uh if you've never been i highly recommend it it's it's truly a uh, a great event that um that i think you'll enjoy even if you don't like golf um we talk about David's background growing up in a blue collar family and then navigating into college and ultimately law school at UCLA um he spent 20 years as a litigator at Snell uh, before transitioning in-house, which is really interesting and unique because it's a little later in most people, you know, than than most people make that transition, and it's been a highly successful one for him. And he talks about kind of creating that opportunity for himself, and that you create your own luck through what he calls the grind. You know, just day after day doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking, and those little things add up and they compound over many, many years and can result in a, a really successful career uh, like he's had. He's uh, he's had an interesting career. it has been very successful. I think uh, you're really going to enjoy getting to know him better in this episode, and so without further ado, this is the episode with David Rout David Rao, thank you for joining me here in the Attorney Lounge. You had some good times in the Attorney Lounge, Brad Roberts. I know. I was going to say this is sort of a deja vu moment. About 20 years ago, probably to this day, we were sitting in the Attorney Lounge playing hearts.
1: 25
0: maybe, but let's not get ourselves. <laughs> let's be generous. Okay, so a, a lot of what we do, we go into the background, sort of understand where you grew up and some of the, some of that sort of stuff. But I'm going to hit you with the curveball question right out of the gate. This is going to be the hardest one of the of, of the afternoon. Okay, you're a Thunderbird. The Thunderbirds throw the Phoenix Open. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, who's going to win the Phoenix Open this year? Xander. Really? Yeah, Sandy, You, boy, go on. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to hit you with who I think, which is also a homegrown guy. I'm going to say Jesse Mueller. Surprises the entire shocks the golf world. He wins it this year. Jesse Mueller is the director of golf at Grand Canyon university and a good friend of mine. And he qualified again this year. This will be, I think the third time he's playing in the tournament. So I'm rooting for him and we'll, we'll see how he does.
1: If you're going to go homies, then I'm going to go Dylan Wu through um, mm. a Nexus is sponsoring, uh, not Public yet, but will be before anybody hears this podcast. And and I played golf with him at Whisper Rock eighteen months ago or so. And my partner Ron Schertz has known him for three or four years. I mean, really, really good. One of the best golfers to come out of Northwestern University, similar to GCU, but will be in his
0: first Phoenix Open and wearing our hats. Uh, Oh, that's awesome! See him win. That's awesome. That That is that is really cool. I love, obviously, Phoenix Open, you got all the big names that are there, but then you, it's so much fun to root for some of these younger guys up-and-comers. I mean, Thigala had a great run. That was one of his first totally. tournaments, right? I mean, yeah. so it's it's a blast watching that, and that's cool that he's wearing an Anexis hat too. I, I'm looking forward to the first tour player that's wearing an Array hat. I'm hoping that's soon.
1: The last, I mean, get on board. I mean, the last person to wear an nexus hat was Gary Woodland, you may have heard of U.S. Open winner, yeah, whatever. That's my guy. I mean, that, you right, know. Helps. Kansas. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No. Yes, And a great, great guy. We had him for a couple of years back in eleven and twelve, uh, right when I was coming in here. Still a great relationship and, and friend of ours. So, um, yeah, he
0: won the tournament a few years ago, and he's coming back from brain surgery, and I think he's back playing again, isn't he? He is. He- yeah, do you know will he be in the tournament this year? Or is that uh... Uh, not yet? I don't think he's committed yet, but uh, we've still got three weeks
1: before, actually four weeks before final commitments have to come in. So we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I love and watching if, him. He'll there. be here. if He can. he loves it. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of close friends that are Thunderbirds. He's had a good time out there. So,
0: yeah, the Jayhawks are represented in the Thunderbird ranks. And I'm going to give away a secret, and maybe we can edit it out if we need to. But like 10 years ago, one of the Thunderbirds, who was a, a Jayhawk alum, was was running uh, House and Grounds. And, and I believe the password to get in for one of those days was Rafe LaFrance. <laughs> so I, I, if they can't use that password again... <laughs> yeah, the password
1: sure. is expired, but you got to
0: be talking about KK for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll just use his initials. Another great guy. So. Well, I can't wait for the tournament. I'm going to get into some of the Thunderbird stuff uh, a little later. I want to start out, though, talking about you and and your career. So I, where I want to start, first of all, is just kind of where you grew up and kind of lead us through growing up. Like, what, what did you want to do growing up? Most people, most of us didn't want to be lawyers, but kind of what were you thinking growing up? And then how did you transition into law? So I emailed you 15 minutes ago this This is
1: i'm a little bit non-traditional i think so i grew up in highway california which is uh, in north county san diego my dad i was mostly a truck driver my mom was a secretary my dad got blessed and got kicked out of high school neither of them went to college so I, i didn't like i knew i wanted to go to college but there was no like this is what I want to do. There was no, I just didn't have the background to think like, oh, this is my career. This is my profession. So it was a little bit more day to day and was definitely on the list. And my parents, to their credit, I have an older brother and and their expectation was always they had not gone to college or necessarily graduated in high school. It was always like, you guys are going to college. It wasn't a debate or a, it was just. It was almost unspoken. This will happen for you guys, even though it didn't for us. What happened after college? I I honestly never thought about, you know, it's just like whatever happens happens, but that'll be the first step. And then we'll go from.
0: Yeah, that's It was sort of the same for me. I kind of grew up in blue collar type of upbringing in the Midwest. And my dad was a Xerox repairman for 32 years. When my mom went back to college late, we, we lived in in Lawrence, which was a college town. And so she went back late, got her accounting degree. and But it was the same kind of thing. I knew I wanted to go to college and I played baseball, and but I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. I, it's so stupid, the thing that led me to law. I read a John Grisham book. I read The Firm and oh, I well, thought, I, hey, Mitch McDear. The thing that led me to law school. That's yeah, why. I mean, but it was kind of like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know. I just kind of was floating with the wind and <laughs> I landed there because there wasn't much else to do. I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. And it seemed interesting to me. So, yeah. So how how did, when did you first start to think about going to law school and how did that kind of come about?
1: So kind of made fun of you and your story. So, so I graduated from San Diego State University and took a job in LA with Robinson's department stores. And some some of our listeners may know it, but owned and they were owned at that time by May Company, which again people may or may not know at this point. But I was in the finance division. So we had an executive training class of nineteen people and sixteen of them were in retailing. So they were gonna be assistant department managers or assistant buyers and three of us were in the finance division. So I was doing that for about a year, I had two roommates that, that also worked for Robinson's and one of them wanted to take the LSAT and I've traditionally, and i probably at some point told him stories about what a great test taker I was. And so he's like, will you take it? We'll have a bet. I think we had a hundred dollar bet. Who would do better." and I'm like, whatever. I had no interest in law school and I'm like, but I had an interest in a bet and mm-hmm. the- when anyway, so Like to, that's, so that's that's translated, translated throughout me. your life. Yeah, now yeah, that's the probably yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, for sure, I'll do it. And so, so we got the book, whatever the book was, and so we're for like two or three weeks, we're reading the book and studying, and and I took the LSAT. I did really well, kicked his ass, won the, best. but now I've got an LSAT score. I'm not really loving what I'm doing in the finance division. I was a finance major undergrad at San Diego State, And so I'm like, why don't I just apply to law school? And I'm in LA. So I applied to UCLA. And then I get in. Why don't I just go? Because back then, I mean, the crazy thing, this was uh, 1988, 89, whatever. And uh, it was $5,000 a year or whatever it was. So I applied. I get in. I get a scholarship for $2,500. So now it's $2,500 a year. I'm like, I can figure this out. Like, I had a little loan in at the time I moved and I was taking my love of my life. piece, my wife now 32 years, but so she was working. She paid
0: the bills and I went to law school. <laughs> it's kind of like, I'll just back into this. And here I am. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I, I, I love those stories too, because it's just kind of. I always kind of think you can, you can just, you just chart a path and you just sort of figure things out as you go. You kind of point yourself in a direction and things come up and you just, you got to make those decisions from time to time when, when they come up. And when it's in hindsight, you can kind of look back and go, Oh, this is how the pieces were supposed to fit together. But there's just no way to know how this is all going to turn out. And so there's so many people that I think, yeah, they don't, Grow up thinking they want to be a lawyer and they just sort of march through the process. It sort of tends to be more like the story you described. What, what did you think about going to school at? What, what was law school like at UCLA? That's a pretty big school.
1: I mean, absolutely loved it. Loved every part of it. I mean, UCLA is awesome. Had a great time there. San Diego State at the time was not a rigorous academic institution, let's say. And it's changed. I mean, it's it's a legit school now, which is exciting for me. But to get into UCLA and be with kids that were really smart, legitimately smart, and have that just a little bit more academic challenge was really cool. And law school, like both my kids have been talking about going to law school. And we'll get into this a little bit later. Like the practice of law is interesting and and tough. But law school, I think, is phenomenal. I mean, it, mm. both both way you learn about the law, but but way you learn about critical thinking and organization and writing is yep. valuable. And I loved all of it. I had a great time.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, a lot of what I'm doing on the show is interviewing people that aren't necessarily practice, practicing as lawyers or they they're kind of have a nontraditional type of career. And I think so many people go into law school thinking of it like, I'll go into law school, but then I don't know that I'm going to practice as an attorney. And, and a lot of people don't, but you learn a lot. You learn critical thinking, you learn how to research, write, persuasive yeah. argument, all those things that you need in any career. So I think it is a valuable degree to have and a, and a valuable educational sort of experience to have, no matter what you're going to do. Yeah. And your career has sort of gone in that direction where you're not necessarily practicing it as an attorney today, but you started out that way. So, okay. So first of all, you, you graduate from UCLA and you end up at Snell. How did you, Snell and Wilmer are where we were colleagues at, at Snell and where we hung out in the attorney lounge. How did you end up at Snell?
1: So, I mean, start with how they end up in Phoenix. So mm. my yeah. lovely white priority reference is, I mean, grew up here essentially. Here when she was 10, went to Sora High School with ASU. Um, so she had paid the bills for a couple of years and she said, we're moving to Phoenix. And I was like, okay, we'll move to Phoenix. So, and I probably had 10 offers, nine offers at that time. There were nine or 10, I mean, really significant firms. And it, it, I mean, backing into as I, done throughout my life, backing into decisions. It, I backed into Snell because they were the biggest and the best. And I knew yep. that if I went to Snell and for whatever reason it didn't work out, I didn't like it, I could go anywhere else. But if you if you start yeah. smaller, you're not going to go bigger. So it was really just start at the biggest and the best and then you have got all your options open. And that was yep. kind of it.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, I mean, it, it was a great fit. So well, i say obviously it was because you spent, what, almost 20 years there. Almost 20 years. Um, and so what about in terms of practicing, practice group? I, I got to spend a summer there. I did the summer associate year. And yep. so I got to know the people and I could kind of pick the group that I wanted to be in. And I love Chris Littlefield, David Reed, Michael like I, lo- like I just gravitated towards mm-hmm. those guys. And I wanted to be in the business and finance group. And it kind of fit my personality, corporate did. You ended up in litigation. How did, how did that come about? Did you pick litigation or were you just kind of like, just point I me in?
1: deferral? I mean, so with my finance background and I had kind of always thought about going to business school. So business finance would have been the natural, but in, in if you went that way, you had to make an actual decision. And it was probably the same when you were there. I mean, you had to pick a group, whereas in litigation, which was half the firm, probably still is. You could go into the litigation pool, they called it, yeah. and do all the different types of litigation, business litigation, product liability, whatever, for two years before you had to make a decision. And I yeah. was so adverse to making the decision. I was like, hey, here's a way to defer a real decision. So I went into the litigation, which for years I thought may have been a little bit of a mistake. It has all worked out fine now. And think about, you mentioned Chris Littlefield, who is a legend. He started mm-hmm. litigation. In, oh, did he? I didn't know that. He, well, because it was four-year time. He was one year ahead of me. But he started in litigation. He figured out within one year, I really should be on the business finance side. And so he made that switch, which was uncomfortable for him because people on the litigation side is like, why are you abandoning us? But he figured it out. And I thought about that,
0: mainly following his lead. And I just never, I stayed in my case, which again is worked out. Yeah. Part of the podcast is sort of like, it's for law students, it's for young attorneys, figuring out their career, kind of where they want to go and stuff. So what are your thoughts on practicing big law? Like Snell, like say, is the biggest firm in Arizona, one of the biggest firms in the Southwest United States. And so a lot of people struggle with, am I mean, making the right choice being in big law? A lot of hours when you're not billing time, you're doing networking and you're doing community service and you're doing all these sort of things that you're sort of, you're just constantly like punching the clock. I mean, a lot of people think about checking out of that and doing something else. So what, what are your thoughts on practicing at a big law firm like, like Snell? So if you talk about
1: law students, if you're going to law school, if you have an opportunity to be in big law in, in there, Snell, of course, is kind of what we think of but there's another 10 great law firms here and 200 nationally go to big law because it's mm-hmm. you will learn more and you will learn more in two years three years in a big law firm than you in law school and you'll learn a lot in law school it's it's finishing school it's the smartest people i mean so so you'll i mean you'll You'll be a better writer. You'll be a better thinker. It's the work ethic. You'll learn work ethic. And we can come back to work ethic and grind at some point the the importance of that. But if you're going to go to law school and you have an opportunity to go to big law, do it. It's, it's, It's I can't overstate the value of that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It may not be what you want to do for the rest of your career, but the way to start your career at a firm like that, the access you get to brilliant partners and the exposure you get to to big transactions, to prominent business people, you see how those deals get put together. You see how the work is supposed to be done and you kind of get that inside view and and you can do it from a little bit of a safe place where you're not immediately sort of thrown into the fire and you're kind of surrounded by by good people that can kind of help you know, and you know, pick, pick you I'll, up if you make mistakes. <laughs> and I'll give Snell and Wooler a plug because I'm still I'm so happy
1: I was there. And I mean, yeah. and there there are other places like this, but the people. I mean, the lawyers at Snell and Wilmer are excellent. The people are even better. I mean, yeah, it's it's a Midwestern. I'm not from Midwest, but it's a a, a Midwestern ethos do the right thing, treat people the right way. And if you can find a place like that, it will be, they want to help you succeed both yeah. for their benefit, the business. because that's the way the people are. And Snell is very much like that.
0: Yeah, they they are. And some of my best friends are people that I've worked with there. It's almost like, an extension of of my education where those first five years of practicing at Snell and you're coming in with people your age and you're, you're doing all these kind of new, interesting things that nobody's ever done before. And you're having these experiences together. And now we've all gone in a million different directions and stuff, but we still have that experience together. And so like you're an alum of that thing, just like you're an alum of the college you went to. And it's, it's,
1: it's, like a, it's a great how firm. How I, how can't
0: how I can't believe you were yep. there. Oh, years. It felt like last but <laughs> I was in and out. So, okay. So then you, you transitioned in house, but like say you were there for 19 plus years. I made that transition at five years. So it was a little bit easier for me because I wasn't taking a huge step back financially. It was more, I hadn't established a, a huge book of business at that point. And I knew kind of, I wanted to go in house, but for you, that's a little bit different. I mean, you're, you're established. As a litigator at a place like Snell, like walk me through that thought process. Like, how did that come about and and what ultimately led you to make that jump? So the
1: time, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of things there we can unpack. The timing element is important. Like I, I joke with people all the time, like, you know, I should have known within three years, five years that this was not for me. What I didn't or I repressed it, we just had kids probably five years in, actually three years, three years in, we had our first child. So then you, you got to pay the bills and you're making good money. But yeah, I shouldn't have figured out quicker, but you're right. The longer you stay, the harder it is because you're making good money and you may not be worth that much money to a company. And so right. you take a step backwards. Or you, you're going to try to get lucky. I got lucky. I met my chief partners. I'd done some work for them personally, and they had a company that was making a lot of money and they had no executives. And, and so it really started talking to me about TC and I kind of took a look at the business. I'm like, you can't afford me as a GC or I don't want to go that far back. And so the, the conversation developed kind of what else can you do? And it, really was not well thought out at the time. It's worked out well, but it was really kind of come in, do as much as you can do on the business side, take it off our plate, free us up, let us go grow the business. You got the the GC stuff, legal stuff, whatever, that's easy. But it was you know, very lucky. I'll make comments about uh, how do you succeed? How do you move forward? My partner, Ron Schurz Likes to say earn the right to get lucky and it mm-hmm. comes down to how hard are you working? How just how hard are you grinding? What kind of work are you doing? How, how hard are you working to make contacts? Whatever all that stuff.
0: All of a sudden some opportunity falls into your lap. Oh, I got lucky. Earn the right. Yeah. I, I was going to say that too. Like I don't, I don't know that you got lucky as much as you sort of made your own luck. I mean it's maybe saying what Ron says a little bit differently, but you know, your the your work ethic, the network you had developed, your business experience, your sort of approach to it, which I think is the the approach that GCs have to have is more it's like half business mind, half legal mind because you're solving problems for companies at the ground floor some of that's or a lot of times it's not even a legal answer to it it's just good practical advice good business advice and so you you yeah i wouldn't say you were lucky as much as you sort of you had an you took advantage of a great opportunity with some great people and you recognized that opportunity early and then you jumped in and you found out you just sort of figured out how you could help and some of it was legal but a lot of it well, I'm sure it was just business well it starts with
1: how did i meet them Originally, and it it came from a referral from our mutual friend, Jason Rowley. So my partners, Ron and Don, knew Jason, had an issue, asked Jason who they should talk to. Jason told him to talk to me. So it starts with, and it was because Jason had been gone from Snell for probably 10 years. But, you know, we'd maintained that friendship. And when I had my reputation that I was good at what I did even Mm -hmm. though I didn't love it. And another, I don't want to get Ron too much credit, but another thing he likes to say is be good, work hard, be good, work hard at the shit you hate. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I hated what I did, but I didn't love it, but it's what I, so you work hard at it, be good at it, get a good reputation. You get referred, another opportunity opens up. Yeah. And
0: I, the the networking part of it i think is so big it it kind of gets back to the original conversation we had like where you can't necessarily sort of predetermine what your outcomes are going to be but you got to put yourself in a position to have those opportunities and so whether you're outside whether you're a young attorney at, at at a law firm whether you're in-house whatever it is i think continuing to put yourself out there continuing to network the people that i've met along the way have been a bigger big part of my success because I had to sort of grab those opportunities and run with them and 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 work hard and and show my value but but the opportunities were presented most I think in every instance in my life it was presented because of a relationship I had with someone. And so uh how much of your so part of part of before we leave sort of this part of it how much of your job would you say is general counsel work versus business work and now I know you've taken on the president role so kind of you know How how did it it, just if you put your G C hat on, I guess, for for lawyers that are listening to it, like what what in your opinion makes good G C so two two questions there. I mean, in it
1: I mean, it can vary week to week as far as what I'm doing. I mean, it could be a hundred percent legal on a week. Over the course of a year, it's probably twenty percent legal, eighty percent on the business side. On the on the G C side, to me, it's not that much different than being an inside lawyer as, as far as what you need to do well. You, you have to understand that money is made and people are paid based on business. You have to figure out a way to do business. So to think that was a GC, you're just going to say, you can't do this, you can't do that, don't do that. Don't I mean, okay, then we're not going to do any business. And nobody's right. So you've got to be working on figuring out ways to get things done, to enable, to enable business objectives. But you, you've got to be really comfortable with your role as the person raising their hand as, Hey, this is a concern. This is a risk and, and letting the people who are making decisions. Cause as a pure GC, you're probably not making a lot of business decisions. You're just counseling. And so just let whoever it is, your CEO, my case is my partner, Ron is making most of the decisions, but it's my role to say, Hey, this is a downside of that. This is a risk of that. This is a liability. I'm, I'm not saying don't do it, but just know that if we're doing it, this could happen or we could do it this way. Maybe it's not quite as effective, but we eliminate the risk, whatever. I mean, you're still, as a GC, you're still ounce. In, in, you gotta be the person. Everybody else wants to go, go, go. Let's just make money. I mean, you've gotta be the person that's willing to say, I'm all about making money, but understand we're taking on this risk. I just want you to yeah. know when you're making the decision. And-
0: Real quick, I wanna recognize our sponsor Array. Array handles all the details of litigation so that you can focus on winning your case. They take care of forensic collection, e-discovery, managed review, record retrieval, court reporting, legal staffing and recruiting, trial support, you name it. I'm the general counsel at Array, so I may be a little bit biased, but I was also a client before I started working there, too. I've used them on various matters, and they've always delivered. If you're involved in a lawsuit, make Array your first call, and they'll help you get organized right from the beginning. You can reach out to me or visit TrustArray.com. Now, back to the pod. The best GCs to me are, are facilitators. I mean, every time you open the door and walk outside to start your day, you're taking on risk. And everything about business is risk, and it's, it's risk mitigation and risk management, but it's not. You can't be the department of no. And if you are, if you're obstinate like that, people then avoid you. They're going to do it anyways. Right,
1: right. Without so no. Thinking.
0: Right. Yeah. And you got to be a partner. Uh, To them, I I had on a recent episode, I had Christine Campbell, who's the GC at U-Haul. And I told her, I'm like, if you had like back in like 1956 when they started U-Haul, if you had gone to a lawyer and said, hey, I want to rent big machinery to just mom and pop off the street, and let them drive it all over the country. Like a lawyer would have told you, no way. Don't do that. Like nothing like that existed at the time. And obviously that turned out pretty well for the Showns. But yeah, you just can't be business is inherently risky. You need to be a business partner to those people and understand that business is about taking risk, calculated risk, understanding the risk, being smart about it, but but letting the business be finding a way to facilitate what the business people want to do. Let me
1: let me cut off your next question and and talk about a lawyer on the business side, which is where I spend most of my time. Um, so when, when I came in in 2012, um, I didn't know, I mean, I'd never run a business. I'd never been a business guy. I was a finance major years before, but within, I mean, literally weeks, it became apparent to me that the practice of law and you know, to some extent law school is an unbelievable, unbelievably strong foundation for being a business person. I mean, it is. Exactly. On the litigation side in particular, which is all I can speak to, but probably on the commercial side too, it's like the perfect foundation. All we do is, is we, is we go into situations that we don't necessarily know that much about. We gather the information we need to gather and we make a decision, which is, business. I mean, a hundred percent. And we do it again and again and again. We do it in high stakes situations. We do it, you know, with clients that are just paying us by the hour. And when, yeah. you, when you come into a company and you're doing that, it's super
0: comfortable. You're really good at it. And I realized I'm going to be just fine. I've got this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're solving problems, whether they're legal problems or they're practical problems, logistics problems. You're <laughs> You're used to, like you say, gathering information and making the best decision that you possibly can. Okay, so you're more of a business role now as the president of Anexus, but like, give us a little bit of background on Nexus and what 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 you guys do there. Um, so I've been here twelve years. I've explained
1: it to my family, my wife and two children, who are all really smart, fifty times, and they still don't understand what the what I do. They they just say I sell insurance. So I will take a shot. We design and distribute insurance-based retirement products. So primarily annuities are eighty-five percent of our gross revenue. So we we design a product, we partner with a carrier, carrier with their name on it, carrier's capital is behind it. They do all the back office processing. We do all the marketing, and then we work with third-party wholesalers to get it out to your parents. And that's mm-hmm. that's what we do. So it's it's very nichey, very profitable. My my partners co-founded the company in '05, started sales in '06. I joined in '12. But they they built a very resilient, scalable model of being a service provider to big carriers. And yep, and great.
0: It's there's so many interesting businesses out there that most of us don't even know about. And I think like, like a Nexus is, is kind of one of them, right? I mean, you guys have been incredibly successful. You're a huge part of the Valley and the network and the community around here and stuff. But like, I bet you, you know, probably one out of 10 could explain exactly what you guys do, but there's so many ways, but there's so many ways that people are making money and doing these things. There's a, obviously, I guess for as hard as it is to explain, my point is there is a market for it. And your partners were obviously very smart to understand that market and to provide a product that, that uh, people obviously want. Yeah. And they're and they, they had both
1: been in our industry for 20 plus years. I mean, so they, they came to it, but with that experience in the industry, they saw a need and opportunity and were able to execute on it. But it is, it's fascinating to me as a, person throughout my career i've supported entrepreneurs i'm not entrepreneurial i can't like envision something that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. a lot of people can and there's a lot of money if you can do that
0: yeah yeah and people that are willing to to take that risk i mean you sit around you throw out ideas you think of different things but but there's people that are willing to to go for it i mean where i was at at obviously grand canyon and Brian Mueller, he's one of the, to me, one of the best entrepreneurs that nobody knows about. He's built two multi-billion dollar companies and he's he's been incredibly successful. And so there's just people out there that just think about the world just a little bit differently. And they- identify these opportunities but not only do they identify it but they're willing to go out and and take it and thank god we live in a country that that supports that and and rewards that because that's how we end up with innovation and and progress and growth and 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 it's fantastic that going back to an earlier comment that you were able to recognize that opportunity and jump in with both feet and sort of throw caution to the wind a little bit with 19 years of experience at a big law firm like Snell & to see that there was an opportunity here and and to jump in and help them build it into what it's become.
1: Yeah, let me follow up on that. When you talk about when let's let's say you've got a law school, let's say you're in big law, and whether you leave after five years or, or twenty years, you're leaving something that's pretty darn safe. I mean, mm-hmm. like Snell I mean it's a it's a battleship. It's not it's not going down. It's going to keep moving forward. If you stay on board, you're going to be just fine. But if you jump off board, I mean, you're, you're taking, I don't, I mean, it's for sure. I was taking more risk. And if you ended up at law school and ended up at big law, you're probably not a risk taker. I know I wasn't. Yep. was a very difficult decision. Thank God I got to the right place, but, You know, at some point, if you wanted to do something different, want to do something more, maybe
0: you got to be willing to just like, okay, let's see how it goes. Okay. Now I'm going to transition to another sort of entrepreneurial endeavor that you're a part of. And that is the Thunderbirds that throw the waste management Phoenix open every year. And so before we get into sort of the current state of the tournament and everything, Give me a little history, uh, like give our listeners a little bit of history, just first on the Thunderbirds, because I think there's an interesting history there, and then a little bit of history on the Phoenix Open itself. Oh, God. So so I got into the group in 2003, and then
1: I was the tournament chairman in 2010, which means I was the assistant tournament chairman in 2009, big chief in 2011. So as you go through those chairs, ATC T C D C -C, we call it. You you give this speech a lot (laughs) twelve years ago. So I'll do my best. Do your best. Back to thank you. Back to the nineteen thirties. So the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce decided to start a subcommittee on sports and promoting the valley through sports. And so they they had five guys on this committee. They did various stuff, tennis tournaments, swimming, me, whatever. And it was Bob Goldwater who decided, hey, let's, let's do a golf term. And that's Barry, Barry Goldwater's brother, right? Exactly. Yes. And nobody else really wanted to do it. So he kind of single-handedly started this golf tournament, Phoenix Open, ran it. I think he was the tournament chairman for like 10 years and Mm -hmm. finally was gathering steam those guys, the gold, being the gold waters had Hollywood connections. So they had Hollywood people coming out, gathering some steam and finally everybody got behind. Them. But that's, you know, kind of where we are now. So we go back 75 plus years, sermon goes back 75 plus years, but just kept going. It sort of is instructive kind of where we are now. So, so it was five guys. They finally broke off from being Chamber of Commerce became Thunderbirds and they decided let's each of us, five guys bring in 10 more guys. And mm-hmm. so they went from five to 55. That's still what we're at as far as active members, which is guys 45 years and younger, which are the guys that have real jobs out there that are, I mean, really spending probably a month out of the year. I mean, it's a huge time commitment as you would think given the scope of the event to yeah. bring this thing off. But those are the guys that drive it forward. But every job rolls over every year. So every guy, motivated, successful guy, they want to do a little bit better than the guy before them. And Mm -hmm. so they change something, they tweak something, they add something, which has led to where we are today, which is the scope of the event.
0: Yeah, when we were still on a little bit of the history of it. I was going back and looking. I mean, this is such a huge event and it's such a big part of the fabric of the Valley. You go back to the very beginning. So started like, here's the research <laughs> started in 1932 at the Phoenix country club. Stopped a little bit, I guess it didn't have a huge amount of public sport. The war. Yeah. Then it comes back in 1939, a 27 year old up and comer, Byron Nelson won the tournament. <laughs> Seven- dollar price i think that's awesome and do you and then ben hogan came in second and won 450 bucks i love it i just think like no the prize, okay. money, no, the prize money
1: if you look you just keep going another 70 years prize money is insane yeah especially
0: actually the last 20 years obviously with tiger yep yep and some of the past cha- some of the past champions i was looking at Pretty cool. Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, Johnny Miller, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, Hideki Matsuyama, Mitsuyama, Ricky Fowler, Scotty Scheffler. And this is the thing I was going to tell you. This is the, the best winner of all, Gary Woodland. We already talked about him. In a, a lot of famous events, sort of, or notable events, I guess I would say, that have happened over the years. Tiger Woods hits a hole-in-one on the famous par three on 16. They moved the Boulder. What was that on 18? It was on 15. 15. 15 I think. Wherever it was. 14. It was on 14. It was on 14. 14. So there's a lot, there's a lot of big events, a lot of notable events that have yeah. happened uh, at the Phoenix Open. And it has become this just monster event that's just known throughout the golf world as a unique event because it's, it's less formal. It's more, laid back. How did that all sort of transpire? Do you, I mean, do you, did that just naturally evolve? Is it like, what's your thoughts on sort of how the Phoenix open became the Phoenix open?
1: I mean, it really is. I mean, first of all, let me go back and because not everybody understands, like if you haven't been to other golf events, you don't understand What the Phoenix Open is relative to a normal TJ Tour event. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're, we're bigger than like the Knicks number two, three, four combined. I mean, it's our, our program before the tournament's even started, which by the way is the next season. Our Wednesday is bigger than most events Sunday, the final day of their tournament. Our program before the event started is bigger than their Sunday. I mean, it's, yep. the, the scope of the event is insane. And then when you talk about our gross revenue, our net revenue, what we get to charity, it's just, we're, it's like, there's us, and then there's everybody else, like, way down the line. But, yep. you know, to answer your question, I mean, it's a 100% organic. And it's a 100% about the Phoenix community. And it started, like I said, I ran it in 2010. And mm-hmm. the guys that ran it 2000, whatever, were like, oh, I can't believe how much bigger it is and how much it's grown. And I'm like, yeah, it's great. And now I'm like, look, what we're doing now. And it's so much different than what I did 12 years ago, 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just because this is where everybody wants to be. If you want to see your client, if you want to see your business partner, associate, whatever, During that week, there's only a place you can see them, and it's at the Phoenix Open. I mean, that's just what it's become. But, I mean, absolutely organic. We like to think we, Thunderbirds, we do a good job. I mean, we make it fun. We make it accessible, whatever. But it's the community supporting it more and more and more and more, and it's fun to watch.
0: Yeah, it's it is definitely the place to be. And it's always, I think for the Valley, been the place to be that time of year. And now it's sort of the place to be on a national level. People think of it as kind of a bucket list type event, especially what they call the Coliseum, right? Which is uh part, part 316, where it's completely enclosed and the atmosphere inside of there is just incredible. The energy. And so it really is something special. I think it's it's a point of pride for the valley. Is it any? I mean, is there any way it can get bigger? I mean, is at some point you reach a capacity, right? Well, like I mean, I- at,
1: at some point we're not there. I guarantee you. And in, in, in a, a couple things, and you you mentioned the Coliseum. So my tournament chairman. So when I was assistant tournament chairman, John Felix, he was the first one to fully enclose it. And had they thought of that five years ago? Before him, probably not. And I, I want to give a shout out to waste management, who is absolutely phenomenal. Title yeah. I mean, absolutely. Great partner. But every year you've got a new person in each role. So 16 skybox, for example, or 16, for example, I mean, there is a chairman of that role. He's in that role for one year. He's an assistant for one year. Then he's the chairman for one year. And then his assistant is the chairman. His assistant wants to grow it a little bit, wants to put his mark on it. That will keep going. I don't think we're anywhere near the max of this thing. I mean, at some point it will be, but we're a long ways away from that. It it will get bigger and better and change, I guarantee you,
0: over the next decade. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, because I can't picture it, but it will. (laughs) Well, I know this year, like if I'm reading stuff correctly, I'm seeing that there's like a new suite area, whatever you want to call it, on nine, I think. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those are daily. So one of the, the issues we run into is most of our upgraded hospitality packages are weekly packages and people all the time, including myself, are trying to buy daily tickets. I've got my kids who want to bring in 20 of their friends on Saturday for Greenskeeper. I can't buy 20 Greenskeeper tickets for Saturday to buy packages yeah. or whatever. And so that, the hospitality on nine is daily purchases. So you've got an opportunity. Draft Kings is a great, you're a great new asset. Partners, figure out a way to you know, leverage that. So mm-hmm. you
0: know, again, just, recreating adding on yeah and some of those things that get added i mean i remember when 17 got added and it was phenomenal when that added a whole new area that's a drivable par 4 and it's i can't remember what they call it now but that is an incredible spot to experience the tournament that didn't exist well the the area where nexus is bay club, bay club was, thank you which which
1: was which is on the Left side of the green from the tee box, mm-hmm. uh, great. I mean, brand new six years ago ish, and that was Dan Mahoney. Or oh yeah, there we go. Yeah. Uh, and that was his vision. Like we've got this incredibly prime real estate. Let's build, and it's really the the best hospitality, highest end hospitality on the whole thing. Let's build it. Had the vision to sell it the first year, essentially at a loss. To say, let's just build this, and let's mm-hmm. and we it's been incredibly successful, sold yep. out every year. So the, it was that kind of thinking of what can we add on. Alex Clark took Greenskeeper, which older folks will remember. You couldn't even see the tournament. He moved it out to eighteen eleven years ago, probably. But those just changes, just being willing to take a chance. Let's figure out a way to grow this, and he probably. Greenskeepers probably three times bigger than it was, and because it, cause it yes.
0: was was landlocked, and he opened it up and made it. Mad. I mean, those yep. kind of changes. It does seem to get better every year, and and we haven't even talked about the scale of it. But it's what five hundred thousand people per year, six hundred thousand, more. And and the biggest day was what two hundred thousand, maybe. The we <laughs> numbers two hundred twenty thousand, and our biggest day, ironically, is
1: Saturday. Um, yeah. Sunday, we're always competing with Super Bowl. So I mean, Sunday is our biggest day. Tournaments ending. not true for us. It's Saturday, but we back when we were reporting numbers, I know we had at least one 220 or north of that, which putting it in concept with other tournaments, 220 for most tournaments would be great for the week. That's <laughs> our staff. I mean, it's, it's crazy numbers.
0: Yeah. And at the same time you're hanging out with 200,000 of your best friends but it's comfortable and you're like you got to kind of work your way in there a little bit and you, but once you get into your spot you guys have set it up in such a great way to make it a lot of fun and like you say if you're if you're doing business development out there it's a wonderful way to hang out with somebody for the day and really get to know somebody cuz you are spent food and drink you get into 16, 17, 18 greenskeeper like all these different opportunities where you're not sort of navigating the the course, you can actually set up set up camp, you got some shade, and you can actually enjoy time with the people that you're with and watch a little golf and, and have fun. And so it's just amazing that you can take something on that scale and make it truly an intimate experience that you can enjoy with, with your friends and family and business colleagues.
1: Well, I mean, since 2013, really, we our first the Nexus Pro-Am was... 2013 so we're coming up on 11 years but i've now been wearing a sponsor hat Mm -hmm. rather than a thunderbird hat for yeah, 10 or 11 years and i will tell you thunderbirds are amazing to work with from a sponsor's perspective number one but number two your point about golf as a business development relationship tool i mean it's it's so effective because you're sitting there and let's say you're sitting there somewhere where you can actually see golf. I mean, you can have a five minute conversation and you're not missing anything because right. the shot hasn't happened. You can focus on that shot for one minute and you can go back to talking versus yeah. sports. If I'm going to be talking to my client, I'm missing some right. activity on the field, on the court, whatever.
0: So, I mean, it's, it's been a terrific opportunity for us. And I mean, we, and so, tell me a little bit about—we've talked about it a couple of times—but the Nexus Pro Am that becomes a bigger and bigger event every year. And I think you play in it. Correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong. What's it like teeing it up? What's it like teeing it up in front of that many people?
1: You've seen <laughs> it, crying You've seen my game. It's it's somewhat terrifying. I mean, the first tee for me, first tee is absolutely—I mean, it's just scary. It's scary. Like you're you're numb. It's, Open to make contact, sort of thing. I get used to it within like two holes. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you're able to block out what's going on. And even on 16, by the time I get to 16, the part three, policy, I'm, I'm fine.
0: But the yeah. first tee, it's I mean, it's terrifying. Any favorites? Any favorite memories from from the tournament? Any favorite celebrities you've been paired with?
1: Yeah, I mean, humorously last year, which was probably my tenth year playing, um, was my all time experience. First I started with my twenty six year old daughter, Emily, on my bag for the first time, which was a complete blast. But on the back night we we had Michael Phelps, who's terrific. I played with him it was probably my second or third time. He is just phenomenal. He's phenomenal guy. And it was really great watching him interact with the fans. He is a hundred percent accessible. And he's, he's as big as they come, obviously. Mm-hmm. But on the back time, we also had Ricky Fowler, who is oh, nice. obviously a, a crowd favorite. So 10 years, it was the biggest crowds that I've ever had around my group between mm-hmm. the two of them. Um, oh. and it was a blast because Ricky's also just great with the fans. So between the two of them and my daughter, I, I, we played well. I think we finished third. Nice. It's really well, but that was whole time experience. I will
0: also give a shout-out to Jordan Spieth, who's my favorite single golfer. Just a blast, a gentleman. It's become one of my favorite days because it's a little bit more relaxed. Like you said, the celebrities, the players, they – they will come up to the ropes, they'll talk to people, people are having fun with it. I know like I've seen like Michael Phelps do like his, like the warm, like the starter warm up thing where he swings his arm and does. People are just getting into it and having fun and it really fits sort of the energy of the tournament overall anyways. Another big part of the tournament is the music. I I think this is an underrated part of the Phoenix Open. I'm going to, I keep saying the Phoenix Open, the Waste Management Phoenix Open and Waste management is really fantastic. fantastic.
1: Actually, it's the WM Phoenix open now. They changed it. the WM.
0: And they have been an incredible partner over the years. And it that also is a great like, greenest show on on grass or whatever they call it, but it's they do a fantastic job. But the music part of the Phoenix Open, the waste the WM Phoenix Open is also fantastic. So that and you add it just like you've expanded on the golf, you've expanded on the music, and so now you have this concert in the Coliseum, an incredible event, which is just a incredible sight to behold but but on 16 which is completely enclosed they have a concert the week before and I was there a couple years ago we saw Thomas Rhett and Old Dominion last year I think it was the Maroon 5 guy well I can't remember his name but this year you got Post Malone that's a lot of fun so any any favorite sort of uh, oh and then it just to finish off the music thing at the end of every day at the Burst Nest you have so concerts and so the, yeah, this year you got you got Hardy, Dirk's Bentley, Duran Duran. Any favorite sort of musical guest that you've been able to? Let to me see it.
1: first on concert policy it. because it's a great example of what I'm talking about. It's not that there is no limit, but we're not near the limit yet. What we can do, what we can add, how we can make it bigger. The, the addition of that, I mean, it's hard, even for me. Given that up and so what we're from real management now, if you will, to understand the, the logistical challenge of that concert on Saturdays. But somebody in leadership is like, Hey, this could be really cool and making a huge investment, both in what we had to build on 16 and in the act to think that you're going to get people to come out on a Saturday, five days before the actual tournament started. Walk out from the parking lot, walk that. It's got to be close to a mile to, to <laughs> yeah. a venue, And then walk back and then sell it out every year. I mean, it's, okay. it's just, I mean, it makes me proud to be part of the group. And post Malone, like I don't really know post Malone, but I will tell you as soon as that was announced, I got 20 emails or texts that day of yeah. like, how do I get tickets? Can you get my I mean, it's, I mean, it's going to be epic. Uh, oh, but my favorite from the bird's nest perspective, I got to give a shout out to Dirk family, whose mm-hmm. grandfather was a Thunderbird, who yes. is now an honorary Thunderbird, huge supporter of the group, has been for 10 years and is unbelievable life. I mean, he absolutely kills it. I've seen him twice and loved it. And
0: then Kid Rock
1: is, is my yes. dad. And Rock was there a few years ago. I was so excited to see him mean, did not disappoint.
0: Yeah. I've seen some incredible concerts out there. One of my favorite was Snoop Dogg a few years ago. That was fun. <laughs> but it never I mean, That's it hard. doesn't matter it doesn't matter who's out there. It's just so much fun. And the I mean, just going from a day of hanging out like with your buddies. Watching golf, being in the sunshine in January, February, then heading over to the Bird's Nest to sort of watch a concert and stuff. The entire event is just one that I think, whether you're a golf fan or not, everybody has to experience it. It is just an amazing event, and it's such a great sort of reflection of the Valley. And 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 I think the last thing I want to touch on before we're kind of running out of time is all of this ultimately is to support charitable endeavors across the valley i I think i saw something last year you guys raised like 14 plus million bucks and so all of this is you know what a great combination to have an event like this that shines a big spotlight on the valley where everybody can have fun and yet at the same time it's all being done to support all these great causes so talk, talk a little bit about kind of what the ultimate purpose of all this is
1: yeah, I mean, it, it again starts with the community. It starts with people coming out. It starts with the, our big sponsors paying money. But to be able to derive that, you know, and twenty million dollars to be able to support local charities. I mean, it, it starts with Arizona-based charities. Period. And I've I've been on our charity board twice. So I think I've served six years total. And it's probably the best thing I've done as a Thunderbird because you, you see the grant request. You understand the good that these charities are doing and how our money can help them. Money that comes again from the people coming out to support the event. Yep. And it's fantastic. I also want to comment on the economic impacts, you yep. know, on alley total. We do economic impact studies. At least every ten years, and I, I think when I was running it, within you know a year or two of that, it was a four hundred million dollar economic impact. I don't know that I've seen one since then, but I I pretty much guarantee you that it's double or it should be a billion dollars. I mean, it is a huge on on everything. I mean, think about yeah. hotels, restaurants, most obviously, but it yeah. it's rental cars.
0: It's yeah, it's, well, whatever it's. Crazy. It, it is. And the, and the marketing impact, too, of just exposing people to the valley and, and kind of who we are. And, and it, that has a lingering effect throughout the rest of the year. People come and want to play the TPC, even in the summertime when it's 120 degrees outside, because they want to go right. tee it up on 16 and, and see too. what they can do. Yeah, so... It's an amazing event. Congratulations on all the success there. You've had an amazing career. I love your story. I love everything about it. I, we're we're obviously close friends, but I'm just, it's awesome to see great people do great things and good things happen to good people. And, and you're the epitome of that. What's the last question I'm going to ask you, sort of people looking back at your career and say, I want to be, I want to do what David Row has done. I want a career like that. Like what's your, what's your sort of advice for for young people out there, students or young attorneys in terms of just navigating a career and 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 wanting to have something similar to what you've done.
1: So I I really hate, you don't know how much I hate giving my uh, partner, Ron, any credit. This is at least the third time I've read them. He has a saying, that is actually a trademark. He, he gives inspirational talks that's control the grind. It's like we can't control... The results we can't control if he calls us or how a case turns out. All we can control is the grind, how hard we work, how we apply ourselves, how we focus. And I'm a kind of live that I think that's how I got here. Uh, But I'm a believer in that. So if you if you want to get somewhere, you got to work at it. And and you may not know how the work is going to pay off or where exactly you're going to get. And it goes back to earn the right to get lucky. It's the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, you've got to, you've got to put in the work. You got to do the reps. You play baseball or you're not going to hit the home run. You're just not. Yeah. So that's, that's the biggest thing. And my kids are now 27 and 26 and super proud of them. And they, I probably preached this at some point, but they saw it and they saw kind mm-hmm. of how I worked and they've seen the results now. And that's the most proud thing I am. They great kids. Whatever, but the most proud I am of how they work. And so I would tell people just, you, you got to do the work. Second thing I would say is put yourself in the position of the owner. Like, so I'm the president now. I've been here 12 years and twice today I've picked up little pieces of paper towels in the bathroom that somebody has left off the ground. It's like, why am I picking them up? I'm the president, whatever. Because I care, because I want the bathroom to look. If everybody here, and by the way, I love our employees, so I'm not trying to dish on our employees. But if everybody here acted like that and just think about that, do it. What would I do if I owned the place? I'd pick up the trash. And if you act like that when you don't own the place, you're in a better position to own the place.
0: Yeah, it kind of brings to mind the, the old adage of what you do when nobody's looking. Yep. is yeah. sort of and and a, a career is not made up of of five or six or 20 major events a career is made up of millions of little experiences and so when you say owning the grind i mean that's what i'm kind of taking from it is sort of like it's there's there's 25 opportunities every single day to do something and to do it well and to do it well even when nobody's looking and and if you do those things regularly. You're going to, over years and years and years, the cumulative effect of that, the compounding effect of that is that you're going to have an amazing career. You will create opportunities for yourself, 100%. Yep, yep. David, all right. Well, I'm going to let you off the hook here. I appreciate, I appreciate the time. Fantastic conversation. I think there's a lot of good nuggets in here. So thank you very much for joining us. And closing it, closing it down. I want to thank our sponsor, Array. They're the ones that allow us to have these conversations and I appreciate their sponsorship. And for any of you uh, looking for further episodes, please uh, subscribe to the attorney lounge podcast on Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks David. Fun as usual. Appreciate it. Thank you too. Fun